Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Germany in Focus, a news podcast made possible by members of The Local. Today we're talking about the German supermarkets embracing small talk. We'll get into Germany's plan cannabis clubs, what you'll be allowed to do and not do. The Eurovision finals are happening this weekend. We'll talk about what the competition means to Germany. And there may be some changes coming on the rules of how people can switch to private health insurance in future, so we'll talk a bit about that. Would Germany ever consider having a four-day working week? We'll talk about the debate around that and hear from an expert. Finally, we'll talk about the habits that foreigners sometimes pick up while living in Germany that makes us feel very German. I'm Rachel Loxton and I'm in Berlin today with journalists Imogen Goodman and Aaron Burnett. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. So we're back once again together. We're recording this on Wednesday, May the 10th. How has your week been? It's Eurovision week. <laughs> Basically gay Christmas, the gay Olympics all in one. So I've been attending semi-final parties. Uh, and then there's Saturday's grand final and I have a big watch party planned, complete with Eurovision drinking games and door prizes. Uh, so Eurovision week definitely takes some stamina if you're if you're a true fan, uh, particularly here in Germany. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk a bit more about Eurovision. Oh yeah, I can't I know, wait. Yeah, we'll make you very happy. Are you well, Imogen? I'm I'm great. <laughs> not as excited about your vision. Not quite, not quite, but happy to absorb some of Aaron's very infectious excitement. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start off today by talking about a positive news story that cropped up recently about supermarkets in Bavaria that are offering a slower cash desk experience to allow people to have a little chat when they're buying their groceries. And this is kind of amusing because anyone who's been in Germany knows just how intense and not super friendly using a supermarket checkout is. Imogen, can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, so I think the best way to summarize this story is that Germans have finally invented the concept of small talk all by (laughs) themselves. Um, And it's obviously a very innovative practice where you go out, you run your errands and you you have a little chat with strangers uh, while you're doing that in the supermarket, in the bank, all over the place. So there is quite a serious sort of story behind this, though, um, and it does relate to combating loneliness in society. So I've really noticed that we really don't seem to talk about the pandemic much these days. Kind of everyone seems to have blanked it out. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of studies that show just what a damaging effect this had on people's mental health and particularly the loneliness in society, the isolation people felt. So a couple of uh, supermarket owners in Bavaria have taken this problem into their own hands and they're trialing a special type of checkout, which is designed for taking things a little bit slower and just having a chat with whoever's on the till. Uh, So these are being branded 
Scratch Cassin or Plaudia Cassin, uh, which basically means tills for chatting. Um, and they're clearly signposted, so anyone who is actually in a rush can avoid the small talk if they want to. But for anyone feeling like they need a bit of human contact in their day, they're open for around two hours, uh, two to four hours per day, usually in the morning when it's a little less busy. And both the supermarket owners have said it's been a huge success so far. The trials have even got the backing of Bavarian Health Minister Klaus Holitschek, who's from the CSU. Um, so this could potentially become a much more widespread practice in future and potentially take off elsewhere in Germany. This is so funny because this is just completely normal in, for example, Scotland, mm-hmm. where you go to a supermarket and you have small talk on every checkout. Uh You don't need a special one. (laughs) It's very interesting to see it being artificially kind of created, this scenario being set up for people to know when it's permitted to uh, engage in small talk. Yeah, from a British perspective, gosh, it's it's very strange. That's very German in itself, Mm -hmm. that there's like a time slot. (laughs) But that's a great Bavarian word that we learned from this as well, ratchen, Ratchen. gossip or to have a wee chat. Definitely, yeah, it's a lovely little colloquial phrase. Um, I think you can maybe compare it to the English expression, maybe having a little natter or a chin wag, basically just a casual little chat with someone about the weather or the fact that it's a weekend, uh, for instance. So these little interactions, they may not seem like much, but I think it definitely makes a difference to people's lives to have these little kind of pleasant encounters with strangers just when the opportunity arises. Mm, Absolutely. But my main question with this is instead of a dedicated checkout that's open for like two hours a day, couldn't everyone in general just calm down and have more chilled out supermarket time in Germany. Hard pass. Uh, (laughs) Not not for you, though. Hard pass for me. German supermarkets are not the place where you want to be disorganized and wasting everyone's time. I love that. Uh, I have dinner to make and probably plans after, so I love how people put the heaviest items on the conveyor belt first. They go into your bag first, just how fast the cashiers run those items through checkout in Germany. It is a thing of beauty watching them do it. It's a skill, yeah. And, I mean, just how fast you can get through a supermarket in Germany. It's gorgeous. It's glorious. I miss it dearly whenever I go to Canada to visit my family and have to shop there where everyone is so much slower. I mean... I'm a classic millennial, so I tend to make a beeline for the self-checkouts where I can just avoid all interactions uh, with humans and also the queue because there's still a fair bit of scepticism about this supposedly new technology. Ironically um, enough, because it would make everything faster. It would make everything faster, but you see see these queues stretching to the back of Neto and everyone kind of suspiciously staring at these little machines in the side. And I love, I feel like I'm in a sort of special VIP queue. I sort of stroll on by and get out my card and just scan my own items. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I've got one of those. Showing off now. I know. No cash, no bargain for you to pay your groceries. Absolutely, I know, and I love it. With the small little coins that people fiddle around with. Of course, this is all taking place in Netto, so, you know, let's not get too excited, but... uh, (laughs) I still feel like a celebrity. Um, Yeah, and I think, to be honest, I love the idea of more social connection in Germany, more social connection with your supermarket experience. So, yeah, so even for older people, but even everyone, I think we could just do with a nice little bit more human experience. I agree. I agree. I think these are the little moments that make up your day and it can just make things just a little bit nicer just to have these little bonding moments. 
Okay, let's move on and talk about cannabis in Germany. As we've touched on before on the podcast, the German coalition government, which includes the Social Democrats, the Greens and the Free Democrats, has a plan to legalize recreational cannabis use. This will be a two-stage process and involve some kind of cannabis clubs if it goes ahead. And this week we found out some more detail about how these associations or clubs would work in practice. Imogen, these would be highly regulated clubs, right? What can you tell us about the plans? Yeah, so this is really a far cry from the image I think a lot of people had in their head when the Traffic Light Coalition originally presented these plans to kind of legalise cannabis. Instead of pharmacies and licensed shops sort of dotted around where you can pick up uh, weed, the first phase of the government's plans will be to hand out licences for what they're calling cultivation associations, so Anbauvereine. These are basically going to be members-only clubs uh, that grow and sell weed to their members, but as you say, they are going to be very, very tightly regulated. So a draft of the cannabis regulation from the health ministry was actually leaked to the press a little while ago. And while it could change over the coming months, um, it does give us some insight into the kind of framework we're going to see. So if you want to set up one of these associations, you would have to apply for a license and also adhere to some very strict rules. Uh, So that could include kind of reporting to the government regularly on things like how you're sourcing the cannabis who you've sold your product to and what your kind of current stock levels are. You also have to ensure that your club is certain distance away from schools and keters and that you've really uh, secured your cannabis in a place where you know, break-ins are very, very unlikely and it's not visible to the public. And then even when it comes to kind of selling your product, there are also some strict rules around that. So it would have to be sold in plain packaging and no sort of marketing or promotional slogans. You have to include a list of sort of ingredients and when it was grown and the best by date, all of that kind of stuff. And the last thing you'll, you'll need to do is also think quite carefully about what your name for this club will be. So it can't be anything prom- Emotional. So, you know, you can imagine names like Stoner's Paradise or Happy Smoke Club Nothing probably fun. wouldn't be Nothing allowed. Fun. Exactly. Yeah. Don't put happy or, uh, or or anything like that in the name. Keep it professional. <laughs> Very professional. Or weed professional. Matter of fact. Hmm. So that's for setting up the clubs. Will anyone be able to join these clubs? What do people need to do? Yeah, I mean, in theory, most people should be able to join um, as long as they're over the age of 18. We still haven't got many details about how the process of signing up would work, but you can imagine you'd have to probably show some official government ID just so the club can verify who you are and also check that you're not underage. That's quite important because you aren't allowed to join more than one club at a time. And the amount of weed you can buy is also going to be restricted. Um, So per person, that would be 50 grams of weed per month. Month, which for the uninitiated is, I believe, enough for around 100 quite strong joints. So I think that's probably enough to keep people going uh, for one month. Mm. If you are under the age of 21, though, um, but obviously still over 18, this goes down to 30 grams per month. And the other thing to kind of know about is that membership will be restricted to 500 members per club. So depending on how popular these are, uh, you might have to contend with a waiting list of mm. some sort. And a club suggests... It's like something fun, people hanging out, lots of weed smoking. Is this the vibe that Germany is going for? 
I think, uh, yeah, I leave it to Germany to <laughs> kind of make this very fun sounding thing a little bit more sort of regulated and formal. And yeah, I mean, originally, our idea of these clubs was that they were going to be kind of social clubs. So you buy weed, you consume it on site. And, you know, it might become a kind of neighborhood hangout spot for members. But in the draft that got leaked recently, there was actually a rule that states you can't smoke on or near the premises. So now it seems that it really just will be a place to buy your weed and then you'll have to clear off afterwards and find somewhere else to consume it. Okay, good to know. And that that's the first stage of the plans. Aaron, can you tell us about the second stage? Well, phase two could involve us seeing a very small number of cannabis shops set up in Germany. These would be small outfits licensed in certain local districts. And you can think of them as pilot projects. They're basically part of a test phase to see how the shops would impact local areas, uh, including things like crime in the black market in the area. And when do we expect all of this to come into force? Uh, the government has circulated the draft law amongst ministries and will invite stakeholder and expert feedback on it this month. Cabinet ministers will then vote on it and it'll go to the Bundestag for debate, most likely in June. Uh, if that all holds up, we're looking at this most likely coming into effect as we ring in 2024. Okay. And of course, there could be some changes, but what do we know about how much cannabis people will be able to have on them and be able to grow at home? What will be allowed? Uh, you'll be able to have up to three plants at home per person, uh, by the way, and not per household, as the law originally planned for and envisioned. Plus, adults will be able to carry up to 25 grams on them without getting into trouble. However, smoking in public areas will be pretty restricted. Nothing in pedestrian areas between 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. Nothing at all ever within 250 meters of a sport facility, a school, a daycare center, a youth facility, those types of places. And nothing near a social club uh, where you can actually buy your weed if you are a member, of course. Thanks so much to both of you for that. We are hoping to talk to a member of the government about these plans in the next few weeks. We'll keep you updated, but hopefully we will get an interview on the podcast soon. Let's talk about some culture now. It is a big week for the Eurovision Song Contest. The final is on Saturday, May the 13th. Aaron cannot contain his excitement. He describes it as a gay Olympics, gay Christmas, as he already said. Oh, yes. So let's get into it. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> Aaron, please tell us the significance of Eurovision in Germany. What do we need to know? Well, it is one of my favorite times of year. It's Eurovision week. And make no mistake, Germany is a Eurovision country. 37 countries are competing in the Eurovision Song Contest this year, including Germany. Germany has also been competing since the very beginning. It was one of the original seven countries to participate in the first Eurovision in 1956, and it's the country that has also competed in the most contests. It has been in the most times uh, since 1956. It has only missed out once. Also, around 10% of the countries total population watches Eurovision in Germany. Most years we see around 8 million viewers or so here. The only country that had a bigger audience last year in absolute numbers uh, was the UK. And although some smaller countries do see a higher share of their population watching this glorious 
annual festival of kitsch that I love. <laughs> um, now, Germany is a member of the European Broadcasting Union's so-called Big Five, alongside the UK, France, Spain, and Italy. These countries put in big bucks into the EBU budget, and thus, well, they buy an automatic spot in Saturday's grand final uh, without uh, having to compete in semifinals. But a uh, day public television here does hold a contest each year to decide who Germany is going to send. Uh, where German musical acts perform and the public votes through televoting. So whichever act does go to the grand final representing Germany has had to face the public, at least at home, uh, mm -hmm. before they perform on that stage. Mm -hmm. And how has Germany done over the years at Eurovision? Well, overall, since 1956, Germany is no slouch. It's won twice. Uh, the first time was when 17-year-old Nicole won with a Schlager song, Ooh. something that we have spoken about on this podcast before. Uh, the song was called Ein bisschen Frieden, or A Little Bit of Peace. Uh, it was a song my Oma actually played on cassette tape before I ever moved to Germany. The second time was in 2010 when Lena, who is still a star in Germany today, won with her song Satellite, and she sung that one in English, actually. Germany has also come in the top many, many times, uh, and it has come in the top three 11 times. It's not a Eurovision powerhouse like Sweden, which has won six times, or even Ukraine, which has taken home the title three times in just the last 19 years. Uh, but two wins is more than what many countries have, so Germany has done respectably overall, but, and there is a but. <laughs> What's the book? Since Lena's victory in 2010, uh, the German public hasn't chosen very well <laughs> in terms of, of which act to send. Germany has finished last or second to last six times since 2013. It's been a very frustrating and devastating decade to be a German Eurovision fan, <laughs> I am sad to say, especially since the winning country typically hosts the next year's contest. Uh, the last time Germany hosted was in Dusseldorf in 2011. Munich and Frankfurt have hosted before, but Berlin never has, ladies. Ooh. And I personally think it's time that we get a German win so that we can bring it here. Hmm. Have a big party. Oh, yeah. Well, guys, I really wanted us to include a clip of Germany's entry this year on the podcast. It's a band called Lord of the Lost, and the song is called Blood and Glitter. It's a very, like, glam rock, heavy metal, very camp kind of video. But unfortunately, we can't because of copyright reasons. We will include a link in the show notes, so please check it out and listen to it. Of course, I did have these lovely people here listen to the song ahead of the podcast. What did you think? Well, I have to say it's not really my jam, but you have to admire the fact that it does take all of the Eurovision boxes, shiny, glitzy outfits, healthy dose of camp, and English lyrics that you can kind of tell definitely weren't written by a native speaker. <laughs> so yes. we're so happy we could die. Blah, not quite sure about that. It is always nice, though, to have something a little bit rocky in the Eurovision, just to break up the saccharine pop just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I love it because I think it's so German. <laughs> there is something very German about it, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Do you like it, Aaron? 
Uh, well, it's not my cup of tea either. I'm kind of with Imogen there. Despite putting the word glitter in the title, <laughs> that is not enough to sway me. But it's it's definitely a departure from the kind of act Germany typically sends to Eurovision, especially in the last decade. Uh, so maybe the public decided to pick a dark horse for this one. Given the disappointment of the last years, it's maybe not such a bad idea to take a risk. Uh, although I'm not sure if this one is going to pay off or not. But as Imogen said, despite it sounding non-traditional, uh, being kind of more medley, it does in fact tick quite a few of the Eurovision boxes. Mm, and the bands from Hamburg, right? What are their chances of winning? Well, Lord of the Lost is indeed a metal band from Hamburg. Now, their chances of winning are remote. They're up against a strong field that includes Sweden's Lorene, who won Eurovision already in 2012. But although metal songs aren't typical Eurovision entries, they can do well at Eurovision. Both Finland in 2006 and Italy in 2021 won with hard rock or metal songs. So there's definitely a pool of metal-loving Eurovision voters uh, out there to go for that are perhaps a bit underserved, uh, shall we say, overall. So we could be in for a bit of a surprise. If we break out of the curse of being in the absolute bottom of the board, I'd be happy. So good luck to Lord of the Lost. <laughs> yeah, I'm behind them for sure. And I always thought the thing about Eurovision is that it's very political. The UK has traditionally done quite badly because no one likes the UK really. Um, is it political, Aaron? Well, the UK came second to Ukraine last year, which is why the UK is there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hosting in Ukraine's place, so they've broken their decades-long curse at Eurovision, and it would be nice if we here in Germany did the same thing sometime soon. Mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely a political component to Eurovision. The Nordics send votes each other's way, so too do Belgium, the Netherlands, and France, for example. Germany, Austria, and Switzerland also have at times sent votes each other's way as well. Most of the time, though, in my honest opinion, the song that deserves to win typically typically does win. And I don't think Germany has been doing badly the last few years because of politics. Bottom line, it needs better songs. Meow. Yeah. I, have, I have to say, yeah, as Aaron says, the UK did do quite well last year. We did come second. But I slightly suspect it's because people might have got mixed up between the words UK and Ukraine when they were casting their vote. 
That said, it was quite a nice change not to have to hear Nil Pois over and over again. It was a glorious song. It was. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't a huge fan, but it was just, yeah, it was amazing to actually get something other than uh, Nil Pois. And it was also just really heartwarming to see the solidarity with Ukraine come out in that vote. Absolutely. I think that was a big part of the vote, but obviously Kalush Orchestra's song was also just a total banger. Let's have a quick chat about possible plan changes to how people will be able to get private health insurance in Germany. According to a German media report this week, the German government is looking at making it harder for higher earners to switch from public to private insurance. Imogen, what's going on? Well, the health insurance and care funds in Germany are currently battling a pretty immense financial black hole, which has been the case for a while, but just got way, way worse during the pandemic. Uh, So this year, they're expecting the statutory insurance funds, so the Gesetzliche Krankenkassen, to need an extra 17 billion euros just to keep their heads above water. And in the case of the care system, uh, they're currently struggling to find an extra 4.5 billion just to stay afloat. So this money has to come from somewhere. And raising contributions is politically difficult. Uh, They did raise, um, or at least give the funds a chance to raise additional contributions at the start of the year. And people really weren't happy about that. At the same time, uh, you've got Finance Minister Christian Lindner, who's very reluctant to find extra money in the budget for government subsidies. So it's really a question of how to solve this very tricky mathematical problem. Mm-hmm. So one idea, uh, which has kind of come from the SPD and Greens, is to raise the income threshold at which people can switch from public to private insurance. This would basically force more higher earners to pay into the pot and just hopefully boost the insurance funds without needing to raise contributions. And how does the insurance system currently work in Germany? So at the moment, uh, all employees basically have to make public health insurance contributions, which of course is split between them and their employers, but only up to a certain salary threshold. At the moment, you're basically obliged to have public health insurance if you earn less than around five and a half grand per month before tax. So that's 66,000 per year. At that point, or at least once you start earning over that, you can opt out of public insurance and switch to private. The idea that's being floated now is to hike it, uh, this to the same level that someone can opt out of public pension insurance. So that would be uh, 7,100 per month before tax um, in the former eastern states and 7,300 euros per month before tax in the former western states. And do many people tend to switch to private health insurance? Yeah, well, people uh, with private insurance are still very much in the minority in the general public population. I think you've got around 10% uh, of the population privately insured and around 90% publicly insured. But for people earning a lot, there are quite a few reasons to switch, which does make it a popular choice. One is that contributions for private insurance um, aren't linked to your income, so you can actually save money that way. And the other thing is that I think it's quite an open secret that privately insured people do generally get a lot of benefits. Uh, They get shorter waiting times and perhaps better, better access to things like therapy, dental treatment, all of the perks that maybe people publicly insured wouldn't have access to. Do we expect that this will happen? Well, 
the FDP, who are the more centre-right partners in the coalition, are really dead set against it. And they're currently in control of the finance ministry. That said, uh, the SPD and Greens could have a bit of leverage here when it comes to approving the finance minister's budget. So finance minister Christian Lindner will actually need SPD and Greens support to pass his budget. So that's a bargaining chip that they could use to try and force a compromise on the side of the FDP. Mm-hmm. And why are they against it? Well, they don't really want to do anything that would shake up the current two-tier system, so the public and private system that we have in Germany, and potentially disadvantage uh, private insurance funds by starving them of members. The FDP are also known for defending the interests of high earners, uh, for instance, by blanket refusing to raise income taxes. So this is also very much on brand for them. Full-time employees in Germany usually work between 36 and 40 hours per week over five days. But there's been a growing debate over the last few years about a four-day working week. Recently, Saskia Eskin, the co-leader of the Social Democrats, who are the lead partner in the coalition government, was talking about the possibility of a four-day week. And a survey just came out highlighting what people think about it. Aaron, what's the overall feeling about a four-day working week in Germany? So, Rach, Germany's largest trade union, IG Metall, is calling for a four-day work week as a way to save jobs. So presumably with employees working less and getting paid a bit less, but um, avoiding massive layoffs by sort of chopping off one day um, from each uh, person. The far-left Die Linke, or left party in parliament, is also calling for it to be the new normal. That certainly hit a nerve in some surveys, and one for the Hans Böckler Stiftung found that 73% of Germans want a four-day week. However, it's not clear from this survey who is actually willing to make less, to work less, um, which uh, is the model used by some companies or proposed by some places. Um, But there are other places of work that uh, do propose a four-day week with the the same salary. So uh, this survey basically asked whether you would prefer a four-day work week if you got the same compensation. So we know uh, the results um, on this front anyway, but it's hard to tell what the real mood of the public is when it comes to something like making less for it to work less, for example. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, some companies in Germany are already doing it and indeed elsewhere in Europe. Yeah, so some metal workers in Germany are indeed already doing it um, at a reduced uh, workload. Four-day weeks are also much more common uh, in the Netherlands and Denmark, for example. Uh, Spain is also trialing one out. So the talk isn't just happening here. Let's now hear from Martin Gate. He is an entrepreneur, keynote speaker and author of the book Vier Tage Woche or Four Day Week. He has been researching and interviewing companies across Germany, Switzerland and Austria that have implemented a four-day work week. I asked him what he found out about them. Well, it's amazing. It's actually amazing. It's much better than any expert would have thought. I found them through Instagram. I used the hashtag four-day work week in German, which is vier Tage Woche, and I found thousands of companies. And I interviewed 151 of them, and they all say it's better, much better than they even expected. 
for example, the rate of sick people in the companies have dropped like to half of the sick people to one company even said they didn't have one sick person the whole last year or the whole atmosphere in the companies is better. The people are happier. The people are healthier. The people are like in the hotels. They respond much more friendly to the guests, which of course is very important in a hotel. And so every company I've, I've talked to, they are more than happy and very amazed by the results. And Martin, what kind of industries are these companies usually in? What, what kind of work are we talking about here? Name any uh, company, name any branch, name any industry. All of them do it. I found in every industry, I found uh, companies in Germany, Austria and Switzerland, like hotels. Then, uh, for example, carpenters, uh, roofers, people that implement heating, like the classic industry like production, healthcare, hospital, kindergarten. Name any branch. Everyone has already implemented the four-day working. And what do you think about the criticism that it could result in a decrease in productivity? It could damage the economy if it was more widespread. What would you say to that? It's funny because it's the same arguments you had 100 years ago when they changed from a seven-day work week to a six-day work week. And the same discussion <laughs> we had in the, in the 60s when it changed from a six-day work week to a five-day work week. It's always the same argument. And I mean, the, the economy has never crashed. The opposite is correct. There are uh, experts, they say, every time we reduced the working hours, there was a huge amount of innovation. So I think the opposite will happen. We will see an increase in innovation. I mean, just look at all the artificial intelligence and all the opportunities. I know text accountants that are using chat GPT since four or five months. So, I mean, we have all the possibilities. There's not one company with a reduced productivity. So everybody who's saying or kind of painting this dark image can't even show one bad example. So that's why I think it's nonsense. And do you think that like how we went to a six-day working week and then to a five-day working week, do you think it's kind of inevitable that Germany will see 40 working week becoming the norm in future? Definitely, definitely. Because right now the companies changing to a four-day work week they before there the, there is a painter and and she had four employees and she couldn't do all the work she wanted to do for the customers and then she changed to a four-day work week and the next month she had 20 employees and 40 more that want to work with her so all the companies doing a, a changing to a four-day work week they see that suddenly they find all the employees they thought that are not there. So the people are there, but they are expecting a different way of working. And doing like software engineering, you can easily change to a four-day work week. And, and yes, I think it will be it will be going much more quickly than we thought a year ago. And I, I think the thing is that most people would want a four-day work week, but they would also want the same amount of pay. Oh, yeah. Definitely, definitely. All the examples I interviewed, they have the same amount of pay. I hope we will see a lot of more companies changing now. Let's stick with this topic. Imogen, you spoke to an economic researcher about this. What did he have to say? Yeah, that's right. So I actually spoke a little while ago with uh, Professor Enzo Weber, uh, who's an expert in the economy of work at the University of Regensburg. I have to say he was a little bit more sceptical than Martin Gied, uh when it came to the four-day week, but he wasn't necessarily against it. 
His point was mainly that a switch to a four-day working week for the same pay wouldn't make economic sense because it would really require a 25% uptick in productivity over that time. He also pointed out that some of the successful trials that were done, you know, for example, in the UK, may have been a skewed sample because the companies who participated already had a positive view of the four-day week. And they also had ideas of how they could integrate it into their work practices, uh, for example, by adopting new technologies or new processes. However, he did say that with some flexibility, he did believe it was possible to reduce people's hours to a four-day week across all industries at least in theory. Um, He pointed out the companies have been doing this for years with part-timers, so really it just involves a more flexible attitude on the part of managers and company owners. And what are the current rules for Germany when it comes to working hours? Well, generally there are quite clear-cut rules about how much you're allowed to work in Germany, but these mostly relate to the sort of upper limits. Uh, So, for instance, your average hours over a six-week period uh, need to be no more than 48 per week. Um, And you also need to be given a certain amount of time off between shifts to rest and recover. Obviously, the norm for most people in Germany is still the 40-hour work week, but there have been some successful negotiations from unions in certain sectors that have managed to get this cut down to 38 or 37.5. As Aaron mentioned, IG Metal is currently pushing uh, for a 32 work week spread over four days, but they actually scored a big win on this before when they got their hours cut down to 35 per week way back in the 1990s. And German unions did fight for the five-day working week, right? So it's not impossible that a four-day week could happen. Yeah, we kind of have this feeling that the five-day work week is part of some natural law defining the way our weeks are organised, but it actually used to be the norm to work even longer days and also work on Saturdays. As far as Germany is concerned, uh, the eight-hour workday was introduced by the SPD after the First World War, but this still basically meant that people were working a 48-hour week um, and they only had Sundays off. It took until the 50s for unions to start a big campaign for a full weekend. So with slogans like, Daddy belongs to me on Saturdays, so kind of playing this sort of family card, and 40 hours of work is enough. They clearly won this battle, but it took decades for this to fully become the norm across all industries. Uh, The last people to do it were actually the agriculture industry, who only introduced a five-day working week in 1983. Oh, wow. So pretty recently. Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, the pioneers, is, uh, in this were actually the tobacco industry um, who adopted a five-day week way back in 1956. Really interesting. Thank you so much to you both. Let's end today with thinking about how you start to develop habits when you live in Germany that sometimes make you feel like you're getting more German than the Germans. Aaron, we know that, of course, you are German, German Canadian, but is there anything that you believe has really brought out your German side while living in Germany? (laughs) Oh, um, well, we were discussing supermarket checkout lines earlier, (laughs) and I have to say that I really identify with how much many Germans just seem to despise small talk. I'm amongst friends. I love it. It's amazing. We understand each other. (laughs) Um, I've never enjoyed small talk much, and I love how I'm not generally 
ordinarily expected to engage in it here.、Uh, we get through the supermarket line and on with our day. This isn't the UK where we spend the first ten minutes of the meeting awkwardly talking about the weather instead of you know just tackling the agenda、mm-hmm. or the to-do list and getting back to work. I mean, it's fantastic here.、Uh, <laughs> it really is. Also, I hate it when people are late without、uh, a good reason, and I love that people may be accepting.、Uh, you know, with the exception of Deutsche Bahn, over the last few years, the German institution that is the state-owned railway,、uh, generally take punctuality. Punctuality seriously. I often arrive on time or early myself because I check how much time I need to get somewhere, like any idiot could do. <laughs> <laughs> We understand each other here. It's glorious. And Aaron, I think I know something else very particularly German about you, and it's your、oh. love of insurance. And that, I think、uh, guilty, yeah, yeah that's you, true. You have even given me into trouble before because I'm a typical British person who's not that fussed about insurance. What's the big deal? Oh yeah, well, my British boyfriend <laughs> didn't have travel insurance, and I informed him that he would get travel insurance before、uh, traveling to North America with me <laughs> once because. I wasn't going to pay his, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in hospital fees if he got hit by a bus there. Yeah,、so、I mean that was smart, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, I mean, but I do have insurance for everything. I have travel insurance. I have legal insurance. I have contents insurance. I have public liability. I have, I have everything.、Yeah. You name it, you've got it. <laughs> yep.、Um, Imogen, is there anything that you've noticed yourself doing, or maybe your international friends, where you start to think we've definitely turned completely German here? Yeah, I think a major way I've become more German is definitely my love of comfortable clothes, even,、oh, yeah. and I'd say probably especially on a night out. So I've never been someone who's particularly into kind of dressing up or particularly clothes obsessed, but I'm far more relaxed about whether I wear makeup or not since moving to Germany. And if I end up back in the UK, maybe getting invited somewhere posh,、uh, which luckily rarely happens, I'm generally at a loss of what to wear. So I did actually bring a few evening dresses, you know, kind of cocktail dresses, to Berlin.、Um, but they've officially been sitting in my wardrobe for the past seven years without being touched, just gathering dust. I think this kind of thing has always been a part of my personality, and it's just so nice to move to a country where everyone else is like me, and I can just finally embrace my love of woolly jumpers and comfy shoes. You know, the nice thing about this, though, is that you know I I also have suits that hang in my closet. And they get used, you know, from time to time. But let's just say that they last longer than they might <laughs> otherwise if I had to wear them more often. So I mean, you know, it's 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 a money saver.、Mm, that's so true. They do love comfy clothes here. For me, I have to say that I feel very German because now I feel it's normal to pay a bill getrennt, so separately rather than susamen together. Yeah, and I feel. Feel a little weird saying that because I feel like my Scottish friends would think I was really stingy for doing that because I even thought that when I first arrived here, like why are we paying separately to the last cent? But now I'm like, well, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's nice not to have the pressure, and this is actually called going Dutch. So perhaps it's a thing in Holland as well. But maybe we should start saying, should we go German? Hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is that I do stand and wait for the green man now. And sometimes I'm ashamed of myself. Yeah, I, I definitely don't do that. I got places to be. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you to all our listeners. And as always, we'll add the links to the show notes for the stories we've been talking about. And please leave a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts and hit follow as well. This week's panelists have been Imogen Goodman and Aaron Burnett. Our guest was Martin Gate, and our sound engineer is Reese Edwards. We hope you enjoyed listening and we will be back next week. Until then, take care. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.